So uh, we are beginning a new series. Um, today we're, we're uh, going to be looking at a single section of Scripture for the next several weeks um, from the book of the, the Acts of the Apostles. And um, the, the, the only real unifying idea here is that it's kind of summertime and it's the time where we have vacations. And um, I started thinking about a vacation I had several years ago in... Um, uh, Greece and Turkey, and that was a great vacation. I would love to to do it again. Um, but it made me think about how sometimes you come back from a vacation and you're exhausted and you're thinking to yourself, I need a vacation before I go back to work because I'm too tired from my vacation. Maybe some of you have had that kind of vacation. And that's the kind of vacation. If Paul had a vacation in Europe, uh, it was certainly that kind of vacation, the kind of vacation that leaves you um, uh, completely worn out. So we're going to be looking at this section of of uh, the scriptures where Paul goes to Europe. And it's of interest to um, to uh, historians because unlike a lot of things in the New Testament, we have a very good idea of when it happened. We know within about 18 months uh, when these events took place. They took place um, during the... Uh, they took place... Uh, these events took place in 51 to 52. I forgot to press the button, so... So um, they took place in 51 to 52. We know that because we have external uh, records from the Bible. There's things scribed, uh, you know... Um, uh, inscribed in walls and places and so forth. So we actually know about the, the time frame that, that Paul was operating in Europe. So it's kind of neat from a historical point of view. It's also neat because this is, as far as we know, the uh, first, uh, the, 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 the churches we'll read about in this series are the first churches that were ever planted in Europe. So if you think of uh, church, Christianity has been in, in Europe for almost 2,000 years, and we're kind of getting a view of what that first looked like. So this this movement that has spanned now almost two millennia, we're getting a, a glimpse of it, of what it looked like. It's possible there, there were Christians in Rome at this time, but as we'll see in a, in a couple of weeks, that may not be the case, that this may be actually the first, uh, the first uh, uh, Christian churches located in Europe. So that makes it interesting from a, a historical point of view. It's interesting to, to church people because, because it gives us background and helps us to understand what's going on in some of the passages in the New Testament from the letter that Paul wrote to one of those churches, the church in Philippi, the letter to the Philippians, that um, we're going to hear about Philippi today. But he also wrote letters to other churches in the same journey, uh, churches in Thessalonica and in Corinth. So uh, it gives us some background about those congregations, and we can understand what was going on there a little bit better. So it's interesting from a historical standpoint, and it's interesting from a theological, uh, from a church history standpoint, but it's also interesting from a theological standpoint. And uh, today we're going to look at one example of that. We're going to look at the question of who is the gospel for? Who is the gospel for? Um, do you know is the gospel for you? How, how do you know if the gospel is for you? We're, we're going to be looking at the gospel itself in, in, an, upcoming, in an upcoming message. But, but let's assume for the sake of argument that the gospel is something you want. And we don't know that yet. We haven't explored that yet. But if it's not for you, it really doesn't matter. If the gospel is something that you're not qualified to receive, it really doesn't matter if you want it or not. So let's uh, let's assume you want it. And now let's ask the question of, can you have it? Are you qualified to receive the gospel? How do you know if you're qualified to receive the gospel? I think a lot of people, the, the answer would boil down to, well, you know, here I am in church and nobody stopped me. They haven't kicked me out yet. And that's, that's kind of a good pragmatic answer, but it raises the question, what about tomorrow? Or what about uh, a year from now? What about 
uh, 10 years from now, do I really deserve to be in here? Am I qualified to receive the gospel? Is there some line I cross uh, that I might cross? Is there some boundary that I might go beyond that would disqualify me from receiving the gospel? Is there something I might do in the future that might render me unworthy or incapable of receiving the gospel? So that's a question we're going to look at in today's reading. And um, maybe for some people, that's not the concern. Maybe the question isn't what about something I might do in the future, but what about something I already do? And I wonder, is that disqualifying? What is it, you know, would the people here accept me if they knew what I did at work, what I had to do in order to keep my job? If they knew the practices I engaged in, would that disqualify me from being a part of a church? What about my substances? If the people in the church knew the way I dealt with substances, would that disqualify me? If the people in the church knew the way I expressed my sexuality, would that disqualify me? If the people knew my background, if they knew the thing I had done back at that time, would that disqualify me? These are real questions that people have, and if you don't have those questions, you know people who do. There are people in your lives, and if you stop and think a minute, you can probably imagine their face, who have this question. And they may, they may also have reservations about the gospel. They may say, well, I don't even know if I want the gospel, right? But before we get to that question, there's the first question of, could they have it if it was offered to them? Do they qualify for the gospel? Or are there things we can do that disqualify us from receiving the gospel? So that's that's what we're going to look at today as we read this passage. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at a, a section of Scripture called uh, Paul's Second Missionary Journey. So just to orient us, this is a map of uh, Europe on the top and Africa on the bottom and then Asia off to the side. So um, I'm pointing the wrong direction. So Asia... Asia that way. So um, a lot of a lot of the things that happen in the New Testament are centered around Jerusalem. So uh, Jerusalem is highlighted there down in the southern part of the Holy Land. And Paul is who we're going to be following in this in this lesson. And Paul operates out of Antioch, which is north. It's in what is today modern day Syria. So Paul is operating out of Antioch. But the missionary journey he takes begins in, in um, Antioch and it goes across um, Asia Minor. So Paul is uh, traveling across Asia Minor. In uh, This is the second time he went. Uh, if you go back to the previous chapters, you can read about the first one. But Paul is traveling across Asia Minor. And we're going to pick him up there at the, at the far northwestern edge of Asia Minor. So if you think of the United States, he's kind of in Seattle. So where is he going to go from Seattle? That's where we're going to pick up the story in a place called Troas. And what we're going to see is he's going to go across the Aegean Sea and go to Greece. So, um, so we pick up the story in verse, um, 11. Luke tells us, and and I think this is on the blue insert, yes, so, um, so Luke tells us, we boarded a a boat at Troas and sailed straight across to the island of Samothrace, and the next day we landed at Neapolis. From there we reached Philippi, a major city of that district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony, and we stayed there several days. So, so first of all, Paul, uh, Luke tells us, uh, first of all, Luke tells us we. So up until this point, Luke has been telling things that he heard from people who were part of it. But Luke was a part of the second, of the second missionary journey. So Luke is actually giving us eyewitness testimony here. He says, I was on that boat 
and we set out from Troas. So here is Troas looking across the Aegean Sea, and they go to that second island there you can see called Samothrace, and then from Samothrace they go across to Neapolis. And so uh, Neapolis is a port city, and uh, from Neapolis they go inland. There's kind of a little coastal range there. They go inland to the plain there, and that's where Philippi is. So they go to Philippi, and um, that's Philippi. You can see there's a little mountain there, and Philippi is on one side of it. So so that's where they go to. So he says, we went to uh, Philippi, a major city of that district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony. What is a colony? A colony is, an, is, is something the, the Romans invented. Um, if you if you are trying to maintain an empire, you need a lot of you need a lot of legions out there to pacify the people in the provinces. Well, what do you do when they're pacified? Do you bring the legions back to Italy? Well, maybe, but what if they like their general more than they like the current emperor? Well, then you know they might say, well, let's replace the emperor with our general. And that happened many times because Italy let the emperor. Uh, uh, let, let the general come back to Italy with his with his legions. So they came up with the idea: let's leave the legionaries out in the provinces. So we will create little little towns out in the provinces called colonies, which are like little bits of Rome. And we've already taken the whole country from some some local people. So we'll just give some of their land to our legionaries, so they get a farm. They're happy. They're not in Italy. We're happy. So it's a win-win. And the way that they would work this is they would say, okay, this city is now part of Rome. It's not in Italy, but this one little town is part of Italy, even though it's located in, in Greece. It is a Roman colony, and so it's got special status. The people who lived in the colony were, were Roman citizens, and they had special rights. They didn't have to pay the same taxes as their neighbors did from outside that colony. So it was a special deal, and people who lived there would be very proud of their Roman citizenship. They would be very sensitive to making sure they got all the rights and privileges of being a colony. And so that's helpful context, as we'll see as we go through this. So that's where we begin. We are now in Philippi. And then Luke tells us, on the Sabbath, we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer. And we sat down to speak with some of the women who had gathered there. So why did they go outside of town? Well, because this is a Roman colony. And in Rome, you aren't allowed to just start a new religion whenever you feel like. Religions had to be old religions that, that were well-known and trusted. And uh, Judaism was actually allowed. Judaism had been able, as, as Israel was conquered by the Romans, uh, Israel was included in that list of official religions. But there weren't enough Jews in Philippi to start a, to start a, um, a synagogue. So uh, they couldn't have formal Jewish religion um, uh, worship in the city of Philippi. So if you wanted to, to worship the Jewish God, you had to go outside the city. And um, some, sometime during that week, up until the Sabbath, they had heard or rumors had told them that there was a group that met out at the riverbed. So that went out to the riverbank. So they went out to the riverbank. And one of the neat things about not being in a synagogue is they meet the women. In a synagogue, the men are over here and the women are over there. But because they're at the riverside, there's mixing. And so they actually get a chance to meet Lydia. Um, so uh, we pick it up in verse 14. One of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshiped God. She listened to us and the Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. She and her household were baptized and she asked us to be her guests. If you agree that I am a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And she urged us until we accepted. So Lydia becomes a convert. The first convert we know of in Europe is a woman named Lydia. 
And what do we know about her? Well, she's a worshiper of God. He says that she worshiped God. That meant she was not Jewish. She was uh, uh, from one of the polytheistic religions of that culture who was attracted to the Jewish God, who's basically saying, I wish that, that Mars and Jupiter treated us the way you tell me your God treats you. I wish that I could have a God who actually cared about me. See, in my religion, we are playthings of the God, and the best thing you can do is stay off their radar. But you have a God who actually cares for you and works on your behalf. I like that God, and I want to find out more. So she would attend their prayer meetings and was drawn to the Jewish religion, but she had not become a Jew. She's a worshiper of God. What else do we know about her? Well, she's a merchant of expensive purple cloth. She may not be rich, but she's probably not poor. She bumps elbows with rich people because in that society, nobody could afford purple the way that they made the debt die. And she's got a household. She seems to have some independence. She doesn't, we don't hear anything about a husband. And in that culture, that would have made her stand out. So that's what we know about Lydia. Um, and she becomes a believer. She's baptized and then she urges the missionaries to stay in her house. So, if we're wondering who is the gospel for, we might think, well, maybe her, right? She's religious. She's She's got some means. She's independent. She's able to make her own decisions. What about her? Well, before we answer the question, let's look at the next person we meet. One day, picking it up in chapter 16, one day as we were going down to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit that enabled her to tell the future. She earned a lot of money for her masters by telling fortunes. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, and they have come to tell you how to be saved. This went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated that he turned and said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And instantly it left her. So this uh, this uh, uh, slave girl, she's called a pythoness. A python, um, she, had a, she had a python. That's, um, that's a language that means that she, in that culture people assumed that you were you were related to the python that they believed was in Mount um, uh, in Delphi, where this oracle came from, and so they thought she was tied in with with that um, spirit in in Delphi, and she makes a lot of money for her masters by telling people what was going to happen in the future, and then she walks around telling what's up with Paul and his companions. She says. These guys can tell you how to be saved. They are servants of the Most High God. And Paul gets exasperated. Why does Paul get exasperated? Don't you think he'd like the free publicity? Here's somebody that, that people, you know, would kind of say, I could never afford to get a fortune told for me, but, you know, I'm, I'm hearing something about this Paul guy. I should go look him up, right? But Paul doesn't do that. Paul gets exasperated. Why is that? I think the reason is because Paul sees this, this spirit that was in, within her is rubbing her nose in something she can't have. This spirit is telling her, I'm going to use you to tell people how they can be free, but you will never be free. And I think that offends Paul, and eventually he gets tired of it and says, no, she can't overpower this demon, whatever it is, but I know someone who can. And so he says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And instantly, the demon leaves her. And her masters are happy, Well, no, they aren't. So as we pick it up in verse 19, her master's hopes of wealth were now shattered. So they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them before the authorities at the marketplace. The whole city is in an uproar because of these Jews, they shouted to the city officials. They're teaching customs that are illegal for us Romans to practice. So again, this appeal to the fact that we're all all Romans together. We're living here in this colony, and we don't like these Jews on the best of days 
That's probably why we don't have enough here for a synagogue. And we sure don't like them when they start advocating uh, customs that we're not allowed to, um, to, to, to do. Now, that's not their real reason. We've heard their real reason is money, but that's the reason they give. And that is exactly the right button to press in the town of Philippi because a mob quickly forms against Paul and Silas, and the city officials order them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. So that sounds like a mob. Sounds like, sounds like some kind of informal mob violence, but it's actually not. We know that because he says they are beaten with wooden rods, and a wooden rod is an important thing in a Roman colony. Let me show you a wooden rod. Um, there. These are, these are two guys that worked for those city officials. They're called lictors, and they carry around this bundle, um, which is a bunch of wooden rods and an and a axe. And it was the symbol of law. You know, we have, we have the, the, the woman with the blindfold and the scales and the, the sword, right? That's our symbol of justice. For Romans, that was their symbol of justice, and it meant law and order. It meant, it meant don't mess with us, because at the best you'll get a beating, and if we really angry at you, then we'll cut your head off. So that was the symbol of, of law and order for Romans. They used these symbols all over the place. Here's a statue. The, the, the Roman um, version of George Washington was a guy named Cincinnatus. Here's a statue of him in Cincinnati. But, um, but uh, these pictures are all over the place. Um, so you've seen this before, State of the Union Address, the House of, uh, House of Representatives, right? Do you see those things on the side of the speaker's desk? They're bundles of rods with an axe in the middle. This is all over the Capitol. In fact, if you look up in the dome, that's on the ceiling. You see the, the bundles of rods go all the way up. This is a symbol. They're saying this is not mob violence. This is an official action of Rome. We are beating you to a pulp using the rods as a lesson to you and a lesson to everybody else. Don't mess with Rome. So they're beaten with rods. They were severely beaten and then they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape. So the jailer put them in the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the stocks. So they've been beaten. They can probably barely walk. But the jailer, you know, I didn't get to be part of the fun in beating you guys up, but I can have some fun now. I'm going to put you in the stocks. Okay, picture this. Have you ever spent the whole night with your legs in one spot, unable to move, unable to use the bathroom? He says, I know how to teach you people a lesson. So I'm going to go way beyond what it takes to keep you from escaping. I'm going to inflict a little bit of extra punishment on you just because that's something I've got the power to do. So he clamps their feet in the stocks. And so around midnight, they were complaining. They were grousing about how they were following what God asked them to do and look, look at what happened. No, that's actually not what we read. They weren't complaining. Around midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. Can't you imagine how much they were listening? You know, the other prisoners are going, you guys are in the stocks, you've been beaten, and you're singing. What is wrong with you people? There's something, I, I tell you, there's something wrong with you people. And suddenly there was a massive earthquake, and the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open, and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoner had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. In that culture, if you were responsible for taking care of some, to having custody of somebody and they disappeared, the assumption was you took a bribe to let them go. And so anybody who, who lost control of their prisoners was assumed to have received a bribe for it. 
So he says, you know, my life is forfeit if my prisoners are gone. So he starts to kill himself. But Paul shouts to him, stop, don't kill yourself, we're all here. So the jailer calls for lights. This black dungeon, totally dark. This is the era before electric lights. They are in an inner room inside of a dungeon, locked in stocks. And so he runs into the dungeon and falls down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Why does he ask that question? I think he's asking the question, you know, I heard when you were brought in, I talked to the, the city officials what, what, the, what the charge was, and they told me the story. And I remember that, that slave girl, yeah, I saw her a couple of days ago. She was following you guys around. And she was saying that you know how to be saved. So tell me. I'm convinced. The earthquake convinced me. The singing, the singing before I went to sleep, that convinced me. But the earthquake just drove it home. So tell me. You guys clearly have some connection to God. What must I do to be saved? So what does Paul say? He says, believe, they reply, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. And they shared the word of the Lord with him and with all who lived in his household. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. He brought them into his house and set a meal before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. So, the jailer is now converted to follow Jesus as well. I'm going to wrap it up and then we'll talk some more about what just happened. So the next morning, the city officials sent the police to tell the jailer, let those men go. So the jailer told the told Paul, the city officials have said, you and Silas are free to go, leave in peace. But Paul replied, they have publicly beaten us without a trial and put us in prison. And we are Roman citizens. Now they want us to leave secretly? Certainly not. Let them come to come themselves to release us. When the police reported this, the city officials were alarmed to learn that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. Why were they alarmed? Because they live in a city full of Roman citizens who take their Roman citizenship very seriously. And there are rights that come with being a Roman citizen. Most of the people here are barely more than slaves. They're Greeks. They have very few privileges. But Roman citizens have privileges, and one of them is you don't get beat in public with rods unless there's a proper trial. And you guys did that. So they're alarmed. So they came to the jail and apologized to them. Then they brought them out and begged them to leave the city. When Paul and Silas left the prison, they returned to the home of Lydia. There they met with the believers and encouraged them once more, and then they left town. So that is Paul's entire experience in Philippi. And he's going to go on to Thessalonica from here. But how does this help us with the question, who is the gospel for? You know, the first, the first person we meet, Lydia, she seems like a, a, an obvious candidate. The gospel should be for her. She's already a church lady, right? She's got everything but the hat. Okay, she's, she's out there by the river. She's praying. She's not even a Jew, but she's praying to the Jewish God. She's, she's ready to go. Of course the gospel is for her, right? We would naturally assume the gospel is for her. But, you know, that's us. In that culture, people would have said, yeah, but she's a woman. She's a woman. And, you know, there's a reason the synagogue is segregated, right? The, the men on one side, the women on the other side. So I'm not even sure if the gospel is for her. But, okay, even if it is for women, okay, well, I'll, I'll give you that. But she's a foreigner. She's not from Philippi. She's not, she's not from Macedonia. She's from Thyatira. She's way back on the far side of Troas. She's from somewhere in, in Asia Minor. Is the gospel for foreigners? You know, 
Is the gospel for those people? You know, this is, this is a, a perpetual debate in our country, like so many others. We, we have a debate right now. What is the status of people who enter the country illegally with their parents? We're having this debate right now. Is the gospel for foreigners? How about illegal foreigners? Who is the gospel for? Lydia's a foreigner. How about the slave girl? Luke tells us that she has a demon. Are people with demons capable of receiving the gospel? You know, let me me just kind of modernize that, right? We have trouble today with demons, right? Luke tells us it's a demon. That's that's what I've got, right? I, I, I don't get to make up stuff here. But, but... Let's say maybe Luke was kind of primitive in his understanding of mental illness. Maybe, maybe it wasn't a demon. Okay, maybe it wasn't a demon. Maybe it was mental illness. Maybe she's suffering from schizophrenia. She hears voices. She says things and people believe it. How about people with mental illness? Can they receive the gospel? Paul, Paul seems to think so. He casts out the demon and Luke doesn't tell us, but tradition tradition tells us that she went on to become a saint from the city of um, of uh, Philippi. That she she converted to Christianity and became a saint. People with mental illness, people who've been exploited, children who've been exploited for financial gain. How about them? Is the gospel for them? Paul seems to think so. What about the jailer? At last, finally, we reach a man for Macedonia. Is he, is the gospel for him? Well, Luke has certainly not painted a very sympathetic picture of him. He is, he's a petty official who has a little bit of power and abuses his prisoners. You know, he's like the worst cop in an era of Black Lives Matter. Is the gospel for him? Is the gospel for a law enforcement official who abuses the people in his power? Luke says, absolutely, the gospel is for anyone who will receive it. The gospel is for abusive jailers. It's for demon-possessed schizophrenics. It's for girls who've been exploited for financial aid, for financial gain. And it's for foreigners and women. The gospel is ultimately for everyone who will receive it. The gospel is for you. The gospel is for me. Is there some line you can cross someday where you would suddenly become disqualified from receiving the gospel? No, there is no line you can cross. There is no line that you crossed in the past. There's no reason for you to keep it a secret because there is no line. There is no boundary that excludes you from receiving the gospel. The gospel is available to all who will receive it. Let me close with this. I'm struck by the fact that the the two people whose conversion is explicitly described in this passage immediately open their homes as a result of it. They extend hospitality as as an outgrowth of having received the gospel. You know, we gather every Sunday. This this building is not the church. This is our house. We are the church. 
And this is our house. And so do we, as believers, open our house in a way that makes the gospel available to everyone? This is the question for us as the church. Do we make the church available to people who have been exploited, people who have abused their power, people who aren't like us? Because that's who the gospel is for. It's for people like that, and it's for people like us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the gospel. Lord, the way that Luke orders his story, we have not yet had a clear explanation of what the gospel is. But we're assuming from what we've read previously, the gospel is something we want. And it is good news to us, O God, to know that there is no boundary, there is no disqualification that would keep us from receiving what you offer to us, Lord. So we pray for us as individuals, when we pray for this church, that we could extend your gracious hospitality to all who wonder, are they truly welcome? We pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen.